What's up, guys? From the heart of Montana, this is Carroll College's student podcast, Big Sky, Small World. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the movie segment of Big Sky, Small World. I am your host, John Phillips. Hope you all are having a, a fine day whenever you may be listening to this. Currently, it is a Wednesday, April 27th. And on today's slate, we have several movies. We're not going to be talking about the episode 5 of Moon Knight, which came out today. Taking a break from that. Instead, we are going to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. The unbearable weight of massive talent. The Northman. And the movie of the week, which I talked about last week, which is The Princess Bride. I figured a lot of people like the film, enjoy the film. You know, they don't have to, it, even people that aren't super big movie lovers enjoy the film. So I figured it'd be a good one to talk about and discuss with you all. Well, I think without further ado, we should just jump right into it. We'll start with Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. This one, unlike The Princess Bride, is not for everyone. It is quite weird, quite different than basically every other movie in existence. A lot of movies. It is weird. Essentially, it is about this girl, this woman who owns a laundromat and her and her family are her and her family are having a lot of issues. She's settling a divorce, settling for divorce with her husband. She has a bad relationship with with her daughter, and she doesn't really like her daughter's girlfriend. But as the story progresses, um, she ends up having to save the entire universe, the into all the universes, all the worlds, because different timelines, because of this. This entity, which I will not talk about because it's a spoiler. But yeah, essentially it's a multiverse movie and it's quite crazy. It's produced by A24 and they make weird films. If, if you're not aware, A24, that's kind of their thing. But some of the things that I will point out, spoiler free, of course. This is spoiler free. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is spoiler free. The Northman is spoiler free. But The Princess Bride is not. That one we're actually going to go in depth on. The things that I'll mention about everything, everywhere, all at once is it was nice seeing Ki He Kwan. I think I'm saying that right. I'm probably butchering it, but I hope I'm saying that right. It was nice seeing him back on the big screen because he took a break from acting after the Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, which he played short round in, and he played Data in the Goonies. Uh, those two were, those are his two big roles, and then people started to not get not call him back because he was kind of typecasted in that young child role. And as he was getting older, no one wanted him to hire for thing hire him for other movies and other roles because the production companies thought, oh, everyone would just remember him as this person. But it's finally nice to see him back on the big screen and back on a film and back in a film. Because he is a he is a fun actor, and in this movie he definitely carries some strong acting uh, performance. He carries a strong acting performance with him in this film, and definitely is up there with the likes of. Uh, no, I wouldn't say quite to the level that Michelle Yeoh is in this film. She is the main character, but he definitely deserves to be 
in this film and definitely deserves to be talked about as far as some of the best, better acting performances in the movie. The action was absolutely bananas. I mean, I'm trying to think of the last movie where I've seen this much just crazy and almost psychotic act. There, there was loads of it. It kind of reminds me of, I guess, a Jackie Chan movie such as Police Story, which is his kind of breakout role. But it is super, super hyper kind of action. And, of course, lots of martial arts, obviously. And, yeah, that was really cool to see and was highly entertaining. However, it didn't hit me like it did with other people in film in, in cinema, as cinephiles, I guess you should, you could say, I, I don't get me wrong from a filming perspective, you know, the foundational elements that make up a film, there were se- several of those were very strong and were very, were evidently there and were masterfully done. However, I, to me, the, and again, this is not giving anything away. The plot was a little too jam-packed for my liking. There was a lot, a lot of stuff that went down in a short amount of time compared to, you know, a longer movie that they could have used, a longer uh, time frame they could have used for what's actually in the film. And so when you get the payoff at the end of the film, for me, I didn't get that payoff or I didn't get that payoff to the point that I was expecting or that you really want because I was so just kind of disoriented from all this these plot lines and and the, the the content that was in this this the middle like two-fourths of the film which was which again yeah I just it blew me off the tracks and it was hard to uh, really take in the payoff and I and and also the fact that I just don't think the payoff should the payoff should have been longer as well I think that's another big thing that affected my opinion of it. But nonetheless, again, still very, very well done. And as I mentioned, the film is nothing like is like nothing you've ever seen before. And, uh, and the, the last thing I'll mention about it too is it definitely should go up for a best picture nomination. I do agree with that. There is this is we're only four months, you know, into the year, but I would be surprised if it does not go up for best picture by in next next spring because it deserves it. All right, moving on, we got the unbearable weight of massive talent. This was a complete joy. So for those of you that don't know, essentially Nick Cage is playing himself. It's basically the most Nick Cage thing you could ever do is play yourself. Is Nick Cage playing Nick Cage. So he plays an exaggerated version of himself, and he, this wealthy millionaire, this wealthy person named Javi, played by Pedro Pascal, who's the Mandalorian, he pays Nick Cage a million dollars to go and stay at his house for the weekend and for them to hang out. And Nick Cage takes this offer because he's running out of movies and people aren't, aren't hiring him for movie roles. So he goes and chaos and, or fun and chaos ensues. It's, it's, it's wild. It really is. Well, first thing I'll open by saying is, which I kind of just talked about, is it's Nick Cage being Nick Cage. I mean, even before I knew this movie was coming out, my film friends and I would joke about, oh, the the that'd be so hilarious. That if if there was one actor 
to play himself in a movie, who would it be? And we all we all decided on, oh, of course, it has to be Nick Cage. And sure enough, here's Nick Cage being Nick Cage. But the, the tone and the kind of the environment of the film is fantastic. It's it's charming and wholesome, and you never re- you never get any bad vibes from it. The chemistry between Cage and Pascal is off the freaking charts. I, honestly, if you told me they had been friends for ten year uh, ten years prior, had started been friends ten years already for ten years, I would have believed you. And their chemistry plays a big role in the wholesomeness and the genuine factor that comes from the film. They have a conversation when, uh, after Javi shows Nick Cage this really cool cliff that they jump off of, or he, I guess, sort of tricks him into it. They have this, Kate, this conversation on these rocks, and they talk about what the greatest film greatest films of all time are. And it is, again, it is so funny because I literally have had these conversations with my own film buddies, my own my own film friends. And so to see them doing it is hilarious. But the fact that they don't do it in a joking matter, I mean, yes, it is there is humor behind it, but the fact that it is still it is there is some humor, but mostly has a genuine, wholesome, fascinating quality to their conversation is something you don't really get in film. It's funny too, because like I said, that's literally a conversation you film lovers love to have and Pedro Pascal's says his third greatest movie of all time he thinks is Paddington 2 and of course Nick Cage is confused why and then they watch it and Nick Cage is crying and and Pedro Pascal's character Javi's essentially says I told you so and that is just another funny moment in the film that culminates that's the culmination of their conversation as far as what's the greatest movie of all time is and another thing too i mean don't get me wrong paddington 2 is a great film it literally has for a while it was the highest ranked film on rotten tomatoes and not even joking i've only seen i've seen the first one and i've seen some of the second one i haven't seen it all the way through but from what i've heard and what the little bits that i did see i can understand why it has such a high rating and it's fitting that they use that as Pedro's character puts that as the last film in his in his top three as far as greatest of all time is concerned. The plot, once you look past the Nick Cage being Nick Cage and the chemistry with Pedro Pascal, it's stereotypical in a lot of ways and meh. It is not really... You're not there for that. That is for certain. certain. There are plenty of other movies that have done a better job with a similar plot Again, you should go purely. You should watch it purely from the standpoint of Nick Cage, and that is, and that is totally fine because he is a fascinating guy. I mean, he literally bought a two-headed snake and has done numerous other things outside of films and inside of films that are quite interesting. He is a quite a crazy. He has he's quite a crazy actor. I mean, in the sense that he does a lot of crazy roles. I mean, he is. I'll be honest. He is kind of a little from from what we see. He definitely is a interesting character. I'll put it that way. But go check it out. It was if you're looking for a fun time and like the Princess Bride too. You don't have to really be into movies to watch this film and get enjoyment out of it because it it has a lot of funny moments, a lot of funny jokes, and that sort of thing. Moving on to a film that is almost the exact opposite of the Nick Cage movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, is The Northman, 
directed by Robert Eggers, I believe his name is. He This is his third film. And, oh boy, this, this film is absolutely bonkers. The experience watching it in a movie theater was off the charts. One of the reasons being is the foundational pillars that are required to make an excellent movie are present. For example, one of those, and this is to me, of course, I mean, I, I've, through my film watching and understanding of film, I consider these the foundational pillars to make an excellent movie. One of them is the cinematography. Absolutely stunning shots, especially there's several sequences where they're on horses traveling to different locations. And it is absolutely stunning, where not only where they're at, but the way they place the camera in those locations. It honestly gave me slight flashbacks to Lawrence of Arabia, which is a film that I think it, it's of my I think my it's my fourth favorite film of all time, third or fourth. But it has undoubtedly one of the it's one of the best shot films ever, period. And it there were some shots that gave me slight flashbacks to it, which I haven't had a film ever do, just because of how grand scale the cinematography was. Uh, before I continue, I should also mention what the plot is. Essentially, it's this son, it's this prince whose father gets killed by his uncle, and so he is he essentially escapes after his uncle kills his, his father, the king, and plans on taking revenge for and, and killing his uncle for killing his his dad and capturing his mom. It's it's a Viking movie, really. It's 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 a Viking movie set in the sort of Viking times. One other thing I'll mention about the camera, the cinematography work, is there's this one shot where it starts out on the bank and you see these two boats rowing by from left to right. And as the boats are moving, the camera is moving towards them. They're on a river. And then takes a sharp, not a sharp left, but takes a, or sharp, takes a right turn and places itself on the boat, one of the boats, with our main character, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård. And, and not only does it place itself on the boat, but then it moves up the boat towards Alexander Skarsgård's character, which is Amalith. I believe his name is. I could be butchering that, but I'm pretty sure it's Amalith. Analith. Analith. Amalith. Something along those lines. It it moves towards him in the center of the boat. There, there, there are essentially two rows... There are rows of two, uh, one person on each side of the boat that is rowing. They're rowing the boat, and it goes right between them. And then also, again, pans off a little bit to the right, so it focuses on Alexander Skarsgård's character. I recently watched an interesting video on how they filmed that, and essentially, at least for the boat portion, the rower that was in front of Alexander Skarsgård's character had to actually drop his oar in the water and then move out of the way so the camera could be in front of Alexander Skarsgård. And that was what hoping, and that was all had to be done without that guy that was moving out of the way from bumping into the camera. It's, again, it's just a testament to how much effort and quality was put into this film. Next, I'll move on to the writing, which is, again, one of my foundational pillars that I believe in to make an excellent film. The pacing, as far as the writing's concerned is with the pacing, the pacing is 95% there. There are a couple minor moments that hiccup, 
But for the most part, if you're not doing a big dissection of the film or you're not really dissecting the film, you will still probably notice it, but not as much as maybe I did when I was looking at the different aspects of the film for not just this podcast, but, you know, my film brain in general does that for good and for and for worse. More with the writing. Let's continue with the writing here. The dialogue was sharp and intelligent. It wasn't the centerpiece. It wasn't the focal point of this film. It was more so the actual actions that were going on in, in, in the in the plot. And, you know, even the cinematography, you could say, would be more of a, a present. Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go that far. But anyway, most of the, the movement really is more prioritized over the actual dialogue. But it is definitely there. And it's sharp. It's intelligent. It matches. It's placed well. And certain sentences and words are are placed in certain areas to emphasize emphasize them more. Again, it's it, this film, I give it four and a half out of five stars on Letterboxd. It's very hard to find any structural gripes with the film as far as the actual the what the actual the filmmaking process taking away your actual opinion of it if you actually look at it from a filming perspective and critiquing it that way it's it is really hard to to find any flaws in the film although as i mentioned i did i just mentioned one and then there are a couple other ones that's why i didn't give it a full five stars out of five practicality which i've kind of already mentioned with the with the camera work is again bonkers there is a little cgi outside of dream sequences and things of that nature but even then the cgi there was really sharp but yeah i mean besides that there was pretty much no cgi there is a volcano fight that takes place at the end of the film and this isn't a spoiler because it's in the trailer you see a couple shots of it in the trailer that is almost all practical i don't know what it was i was watching a behind the scenes video i think I'm assuming it was lighting. Like they put a bunch of they put a bunch of lighting where the lava is, but I don't know. I mean, definitely weren't definitely obviously they weren't filming in a volcano. That'd be stupid. But I and I'm not sure what it is, but it is genuine and real. If you watch it and you see the the lava around them as they're fighting, as Skarsgård's character and his uncle are fighting each other, the Skarsgård's character's uncle are fighting each other. That is real lighting. That isn't CGI. That isn't and, and you can see it. I mean, you, you actually can. There, it's not like other films that actually do that sort of thing and then decide, and then the editors decide, oh, you know what would be an intelligent idea to just glaze over all those practical effects with those practical lighting lights and things of that nature with CGI? Because that, to me, just ruins it. Because it does. It just, and then it just makes it look like CGI again is what, is what ha- ultimately happens. Continuing with the practicality, all the boats, huts, and caves are authentic and created to be the most historically accurate as possible. Eggers talked about this in a interview with Vanity Fair, but literally everything down from the the design in the sh- in the shields on the sides of the boats to the village, all that sort of thing, and to the clothing, to costume design, is all as accurate as humanly possible which you love to see that because it shows because we first of all we don't really get that in a lot of films anymore and also we haven't had a lot we haven't had a lot of great viking films and also viking films that are historically accurate 
or just films in past eras and eras around it that are that also aren't historically accurate. We've seen a lot of those as well. It's it's a it's a real treat, and of course you don't actually notice that when you're watching it, unless you are some historian about this era or some crazy historical history fanatic. Nonetheless, it's it's after the fact hearing that it again adds to the to the foundation of those of those the the pillars that make up a an excellent film. All the people are fighting are real people. Eggers also mentioned this. There are no CGI there's no CGI people. There the the, the editing team never edit, edited and placed in fake people. They're all real and that of course created some painstaking choreography and patience on the part of Eggers and his team, but the, the fact that they went through all that is it just, it makes it, again, makes the experience as a viewer so much better and will make this film age like fine wine because, again, and we're going to talk about this actually in Princess Bride, but anytime you have a film that is purely practical and authentic, those films tend to age better. And I think this is going to be one of those examples. Obviously, this is much different. This is much different than Princess Bride. This is a lot darker, a lot weirder. It is almost on the opposite spectrum. Now, of course, they both take place in past eras, but they're much, much different. Much different tones. If you want to watch this film, I suggest... I'm just warning you, it is dark. It is weird. It's much like his other films, which are even weirder than this one, actually. So just that, that that's your warning. That's your fair warning. But again, if, if you like war films and you can get past super weird stuff, you're in for a treat because the combat is also amazing, I should, I should say. With, with, with all these people, right? He brings in all these people, all these extras, not actually CGI men. It adds this to the grand scale and chaos of all the, the fighting scenes in it. In one particular sequence in section in the film alexander skarsgård's group of men fight these villagers and again it's the change in environment that all these extras and genuinely real people add to it you wouldn't think that it would make a big difference because usually when films include cgi men or women they're in the background but this one you can really tell and it, it again it sets a whole new environment and I mentioned this already, but they built these large sets and these almost fully built villages for the for the filming. And then I, I don't like to re, uh, retrace my steps, but I will also mention, as far as cinematography is concerned, I forgot to mention this, but there are some fantastic one-shots in, in the film as well, which for those that don't know, it's essentially when the camera never changes angles and it's always, the cameras never change and it's always one camera that's following our our main character or our character. And in this particular film, they do some interesting uh, they do some interesting things with with the one shot. For example, in that village fight scene, there's a camera that starts on one side of the building and Skarsgård's character's Analith Amalith is on the other side of the house and as he goes from left to right, from the left of the house to the right of the house, the camera on the other side of the house goes from the left to the right, and so you don't see him for a while, and then he pops back out with the camera. 
just more clever, clever filmmaking on the part of the cinematographer and Robert Eggers. The final thing I'll say is it should also be nominated for Best Picture. It kind of sounds repetitive now because we have, I think, this film, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and the Batman should all be nominated for Best Picture. So it seems like, oh, you're just handing these awards out left and right. No. This film truly deserves it, if any. I mean, that's why I pointed out these these different pillars that I think make a strong foundation for an excellent movie that make a foundation for an excellent movie to, to explain that, yeah, it, it definitely deserves a Best Picture nomination. I don't think anyone will go up for acting. It'll be, it'll be I think, on the same level as Dune, where it goes up for several Oscars, but none of them are for acting. Who knows? Skarsgård could go up. I mean, Skarsgård's great, and Anna Taylor-Joy is great in it as well, but they do a, they do a nice job. And I the other thing I'll mention, too, is Alexander Skarsgård's physical acting is, man... I, you'd be hard pressed to find a recent performance that has this much physical acting, great physical acting that, that Skarsgård has. I mean, he, he goes all out. He, you know, worked out for the film, obviously, but it was more than that. It was the, his body language, the way he presented himself, man, it is an absolute journey that you take with this film. It isn't a full on epic. I would say that was one of my other gripes with it is at times it felt like it wanted to be a a full-on epic, such as Lawrence of Arabia, which the cinematography kind of hinted at at times as far as similarities between the the two's cinematography. But it really isn't. I consider an epic longer, and there's some other characteristics that go with that. All right, that is the three movies that I have watched recently. I actually watched all three of them in the same week. I watched Everything Everywhere All at Once on Tuesday, and then I watched the Nick Cage movie, and The Northmen on the same day on Friday. So, uh, yeah, that was our three movies. That was my spoiler-free reviews of those three movies. And now, spoiler warning, we're going to get into some some spoilers here with The Princess Bride, considering that is our movie of the week. I'm ho- I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. It's been a while since I've seen this film, and some of my reflections of the film are going to represent that. But first, I know, I know. John, get to the movie, get to the movie. No, 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 hold on. First, we're going to do some backstory stuff. And I'll start with the director, who the director's name is Rob Reiner. And we're going to talk about his filmography because everyone talks about Steven Spielberg and his, his filmography and his diversity in films. But Rob Reiner's is... Obviously, I'm not going to say it's up there with Spielberg. I don't think anyone's up there with Spielberg as far as the different genres that he's attacked and excelled at and reached the top of. But it is definitely diverse. So besides The Princess Bride, you got This Is Spinal Tap, which is a mockumentary. It was, it's a, I don't know if it's necessarily the OG mockumentary. It's definitely one of them. But it is seen as a huge inspiration for even TV shows such as The Office. And This Is Spinal Tap is essentially about these this rock band that gets filmed and they're going on all these tours and they're going through all these trials and tribulations and it is really funny i've seen that i've seen it it is very funny the princess bride is is my favorite rob reiner film but if there wasn't the if the princess bride didn't exist it would be this is spinal tap he also has directed a few good men which which is a a military film he's also directed a rom-com in when harry met sally 
He's directed a kind of coming of age comedy film in Stand By Me. Actually, I take that back. Uh, the Stand By Me is actually my favorite Rob Reiner film. The Princess Bride would be my second favorite. I love Stand By Me. It's so charming. If you haven't seen it, I would check it out. It was made in the 80s. It has River Phoenix in it, which is Joaquin Phoenix's brother and also Keanu Reeves' friend. Yeah, it is really enjoyable and it is definitely charming. I need to rewatch it. It's been a really long time. Finally, he was also a writer for All in the Family, which is a, which was a popular 80s television show with Michael J. Fox. And actually, Courtney Cox, who is Monica and Friends, was on that show for, for some of it. I think it was, she was mostly in it towards the end. Among, and again, among many other projects, he's done a lot of others. Moving on, we are not quite done with people's filmography because we have William Goldman. For those of you that don't know who William Goldman is, he actually also wrote... The book, The Princess Bride, which I have read. I read that sophomore year of high school, and we're actually going to talk about one thing that I that was in the book that I wish was in the movie. That, that's towards the very end. But anyway, he wrote The Princess Bride, as I mentioned. He wrote the movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is an iconic rest, Western, one of the best Westerns of all time. He also wrote All the President's Men, which is one of the most accurate journalism movies ever. I mean, it, not that it has or one of the most in-depth journalism movies, not that it has a lot of competition besides maybe Spotlight. Nonetheless, it is still, and it, and it is a great movie. It was uh, Best Picture nomina- nominated. Didn't win. Has Robert Redford in it and Dustin Hoffman in it, Hoffman in it as well. He also wrote the book Marathon Man and wrote the screenplay for Marathon Man because we all know screenplays are where the money are. That is where the money is, you know, all those rights and things along those lines, and Dustin Hoffman was the main character in Marathon Man, the movie, as well. And I like to think of him personally as one of the GOAT movie writers. I mean, he doesn't have... I mean, I I think that the GOAT is Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin is Moneyball, The Social Network, A Few Good Men, that sort of thing. So he's... I, I think he is the most... He is the GOAT of the GOATs for best movie writer of all time. But William Goldman should be in the conversation. And in fact, William Goldman is one of Aaron Sorkin's favorite writers of all time. See, I I need to think about this, what my favorite writer of all time is. It probably would be William William Goldman, considering how much I love The Princess Bride and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and all the President's Men. So I, I would say he's probably my favorite, and I do think he should be included in the GOAT conversation. Again, I don't think he is the GOAT, but he should be included nonetheless. All right, now we're going to start rolling into some of the actual components of the film. So the budget for the film was $16 million, and it grossed $30 million, so nice profit there. I will also preface my review and discussion of this film by saying I am not highlighting everything, okay? I'm just kind of highlighting the things that stood out to me and the small amount, you know, let's say of negatives that that I've found which isn't a lot again. I, I just like The Northman, I gave this film four and a half out of five stars because originally I was going to give it four out of five stars and then I thought to myself, wait a second, the, I, I'm avidly trying to search for flaws in this film and I really can't find any. It is literally the pinnacle of a genre and it's great too because it kind of makes fun of a genre, which we'll talk about later on. So again, I gave it four and a half out of five stars. One of my first realizations starting out in the film was I didn't realize that Fred Savage was as young as he is in this film. 
I thought he was a little older. I obviously knew he was a child, but he looks even younger than I remember. And maybe that's just because I've aged. I don't know. I will also say that it is fascinating from the standpoint that its aesthetic is similar to old Robin Hood movies. I think they did that intentionally because, again, they do make fun of a lot of the tropes that come with this this genre that includes Robin Hood movies. And it kind of has that that fantasy sort of play-like aesthetic that those Robin Hood movies have. And as I mentioned at the top of this episode, it's a perfect film for those who don't like long movies or are not a fan of complicated films, which this is not one. It's a very simple storyline, very enjoyable. There's comedy, there's drama. You get a whole mix of things, all developed and portrayed well. We'll start with the characters and my thoughts on the characters and the ones I want to talk about. The replication of the dynamic between Vicini, Inigo, and Fezzik translating that from the book to the movie. And I don't like to do a lot of book and movie comparisons, but nonetheless, I'm going to bring this up just because it's good in general in the film. Their dynamic, those three's dynamic is primo because we get sort of different characteristics between the three of them, but they all work well. They kind of all have this, I love the, I guess you could say the banter between them and the dialogue between them. It's all feels natural and fitting. It is definitely my favorite part in the film. For sure. Nothing against Wesley or the princess or the prince or what have you, but <clears throat> or the plot. But their 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 dynamic and their chemistry is is my favorite part in the film. And speaking of those three, we'll start with Andre the Giant. First of all, what a guy. For those that don't know, he he was at first a WWF wrestler. I mean he was. That that's really what he was known for until the Princess Bride. And I didn't check this, I should have. I think I don't know if he's done any other movies. He, he probably has, but I, I didn't check. But and nonetheless, he is fantastic in this film. He plays, he does a perfect portrayal of the looks evil, but is actually sweet and nice because I don't mean to, to typecast or stereotype, but that is sort of the idea with with this character is the sense that, you know, on the uh, looking from the outside, you see this big brooding character, but really on the inside and who he actually is is sweet and nice and that really is shown shown off well in the film by Andre the Giant. One thing that I particularly like with him, and I think we talk, I talk about this later, is his dialogue with Inigo or or specifically with with Wesley when they're fighting each other, and sort of the sportsmanship that they have with each other. Andre the Giant's thought process through how he should handle fighting Wesley. We're kind of coming with having a recent. We're having a recent theme here with balance. We will. Particularly with Vicini, he has a subtle balance of annoyance, humor, and charm, which can often be hard to replicate because if you do it poorly, first of all, it's poor, but then also you see, oh, they're switching they're switching from this sort of personality to this personality, or it sticks out one, two stick out like a sore thumb, and then the other you realize isn't even there, but then you, re- but then you also realize, oh, they were trying to go for that. It can, it can end up really poorly, but in this case, all three of those characteristics, those three elements of the character were all, were all balanced well. And that makes his quotes, not only his quotes, very quotable and enjoyable because the way he says them, but adds more character to the film and adds to the longevity of the film, I guess you could say. One kind of funny story that I have about 
about the character is my, as I mentioned, I think already, I read The Princess Bride my sophomore year of high school, and my sophomore English teacher would always randomly yell out inconceivable um, when during the portion of the class when we were reading that book. I thought it was always funny, and it was always stuck in my head. And I even from time to time say it. Not, I don't yell it, but I say it if, if it pops up in a conversation and is it, it makes sense in a conversation, I, I like to say it. Finally, out of the trio, we'll move on to Inigo, who is my favorite character. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Anyway, he his mannerisms are quirky and highly entertaining. I, I love just the way he presents himself, carries himself, and kind of the little jokes he has and the genuine nature he has with other characters and his search to find the six-fingered man. You really see the this side of him and also the humor yet wholesomeness with him and Wesley in Inigo's conversation before they fight. It adds, again, the common theme of sportsmanship and adds to just the, the charm of the film. You don't ever see that in, in films anymore, right? I mean, there's no way you're going to... And even a film of this nature, are you going to see one of the one of two fighters let the other fighter rest so they can gain their full strength and fight each other? At least not in the, in the way that Inigo does it. Moving on to from Inigo to Wesley and Carrie Elwes. I don't know how to say his name. I knew how to say his last name, and then I didn't. I think it's Elwes, Elwes... A lot of names I'm either forgetting or having a hard time figuring out how it's pronounced. Anyway, the physical acting of Carrie Elwes when he is tortured. You know, I talked about how there's, there's not only is there charm and, and comedy in it, but there's drama. And this is one of those moments because when Carrie Elwes's character is tortured, it feels, it doesn't feel campy like some other moments in the film particularly with maybe the the opening with with the trio because there is some campiness to that. This on the other hand feels very authentic and very terrifying. It is that tone that it sends. I mean his scream first of all his scream which happens well his his big scream happens scream happens the second time he's tortured when the prince takes it to 50. But his scream originally and just the way he moves his body is just horrifying and contrasts and again here's the word balances the the humor to a certain extent the comedy with that drama moment and, and it's, it's kind of funny too because it does come out of nowhere despite the there despite the balance that is present it, it is really really horrifying and even as even me being, you know, 20 years old, I was still kind of slightly looking away because it, is, it isn't a pleasant sight to see. I don't care who you are. And I do think that physical performance there was crucial because it kind of made up for the lack of sharp instruments or things along those lines that made up the machine. I mean, yes, you had a bunch of gadgets and gizmos that made up it, but there was no sharp objects like you'd see in torture scenes of other. Moving on uh, for characters, we're going to talk about the prince. He doesn't obviously have the biggest... I mean, well, he has a substantial role in the film. I should, I should take that back. Like many other performances of a prince in a fantasy movie, he does a nice job with playing a bratty and privileged character, right? Because he grew up in wealth and he is the prince. He does a nice job with that. 
not only for his character, but that helps the audience really contrast him with Wesley, who obviously grew up as a stable boy and uh, not in a wealthy family. The delivery of his 500th anniversary celebration and the princess's death line, because remember he has that list where he's like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this was, again, just an attestment to how great the not only I mean, the, the comedic writing is from William Goldman in the film. It kind of, and it also, too, it kind of comes out of nowhere because he is so serious and stern and, and sort of and, and sinister prior to that line and even after, and after that line as well. But just to kind of have that dropped in there get, gets you to laugh. The last thing I'll say about his character is he, he drops the... One of the most perfect cuss words I have seen placed in a film of this nature because oftentimes with, for me, when you overdo cuss words, it's either for a film such as Deadpool or a Tarantino film. And so when you don't have a film of, those, of that nature, first of all, the cuss words obviously mean less in those films. But when you are going to have a cuss word in a film such as this, you are, or a few cuss words in a film like this, you want to place it appropriately to bring out and perk up the audience, bring out a response and perk up the audience. The prince, the prince character played by Chris Saradon does this, does this quite well when he cusses at the, prin, at the princess. It, it catches you off guard because, again, there was no cussing in the film prior and adds a dangerous and important tone with the film. Lastly, I'm going to talk about the Spinal Tap guy. I forgot his name. He's the Count. And the and Billy Crystal, who has a sort of a cameo at the towards the end of the film. He plays the medicine guy. So, the reason I bring up the Count, the actor for the Count is because his range for those of you who haven't seen Spinal Tap, that one is a full-on mockumentary comedy film whereas his role in this film is very much serious and sinister and he delivers on that on that tone and that vibe but then in the Spinal Tap movie he delivers on the sort of dumb and comedy oriented tone of the film and so to just compare those two characters I didn't even know he was the same guy first of all because he did, he has done that good of a job in both of the films I had to be told that both the the Spinal Tap, one of the main Spinal Tap band members, and this is Spinal Tap, and the Count were the same actor. I thought that was really cool. And again, is in a testament to how great of a job he did in both of those movies. Because those both of those movies came out in the 80s, and the same, and I think around, right around the same time as each other, because this is Spinal Tap was Rob Reiner's first film, and The Princess Bride was the second, which is kind of crazy to think, that his first film essentially created the mockumentary genre or at least established it in pop culture. And The Princess Bride is one of the greatest fantasy movies of all time. Finally, moving on to Billy Crystal, our last character of the film. Just like The Prince, he has some great quotes, particularly his, <laughs> his line where he talks about the big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. All dead, one of those kind of clever quotes that randomly pops up in an already well-written film and kind of takes you by surprise and get, gets a good laugh out of you. Also, I'll pass on trying out a mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, but hey, if any of y'all want to try one, 
go for it and let me know what you think. All right, we're done with the characters. Now we're going to move on to some of the fabulous and iconic quotes from the film. I particularly have three that I'm going to mention. One is, as you wish, of course, Wesley, very charming, inconceivable by Vicini, said many times, so is, as you wish. And of course, the granddaddy of them all, the godfather of them all, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. Kind of a funny personal story behind that quote because I, I just, <laughs> I say it so much. I, know, I wouldn't say I say it a lot. Obviously, it isn't a quote that you can implement in your everyday life like you could in Conceivable, maybe. But nonetheless, I, I do like to say it. And I'm, sure, I'm sure, and just like many other people like to say it because it's fun, it's iconic, and its delivery is, is, is perfect. All right, now we're going to get into some of the mechanics of the film. First off, the way they manage to go in and out of the book, so, you know, the father, the, not the father, the grandfather reading Fred Savage's character of the book, going in and out of that, you know, blipping it, blipping out to the grandfather reading it, going back in to the actual, the, to the story itself, and then even taking it a step further where you have the characters in the story, you know, such as Wesley and Inigo telling stories, flashback stories, that whole management of, of those components is almost flawless. I mean, it is, it is seamless. It doesn't feel awkward, especially the, the one that can really feel awkward, right, is the grandfather reading it to Fred Savage and then that sort of transition between that and the actual story itself because they go back and forth through those two things at least four times in the film. I believe four or five times. So to get that right is a huge deal because you still keep the the illusion of the film and the environment of the film and the the feelings that the viewers have of the film. You keep those intact, right? Because if it was, if the, the transition was not seamless, the viewers would jolt up and sort of remove themselves from the the fantasy uh, environment that the, that the movie sets. I mentioned this with The Northman, and I hinted that I would mention it with this film, which is the fact that its practicality is one of its best attributes. We also would never see it in films of this nature today. Films of this nature would be produced by Disney, and that's going to include a lot of CGI. Just just saying, okay? I'm not trying to offend any of you Disney fans. I like Disney movies too, but it would include a lot of CGI because that's the common theme now and the easier thing to do far as because then you have to do less preparation when it comes to building sets but besides the sets which we'll get back to later you have horrific monsters specifically the eels and the and the rodents of unusual size that really really haunt you because they are real in the sense that you can see they look authentic uh, because they are built and not cgi and therefore, when you have seen such as the princess in the water and these eels swimming right by her and screaming kind of in her face, it's, it, is, it is quite haunting and adds to the, again, the drama and sort of the horror of the film that you don't really expect, but are definitely there. I definitely kind of had those moments with the, with, when the eels showed up and the rodents of unusual size where I kind of turned slightly to the side because they... They freaked me out. And, and the way, too, that they 
developed those scenes with them in there, right? Because, for example, with the eels, it's a slow reveal of them. You first see kind of their fins, and then you start to see more of their bodies, and then you actually see one of the faces of one of them before the princess gets saved by Andre the Giant. Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant. And then with the rodents of unusual size, you see one when the princess and Wesley get, well, the princess gets sucked down into the, the sand pit and Wesley saves her. When they're in there, you, you see the, the rodent of unusual size um, right, in front, right in front of the, the sand pit and walk away. So you kind of have that slow development and thought in the back of your head kind of tormenting you, playing with you, as you wonder, when is this thing going to jump out? Like, Because you know it's around, but you just don't know when. Just that development along with the actual presence of those characters. I know there were actors in the rodents, um, but I don't know about the eels, if they were just puppets or what they were. Nonetheless, very, very scary. And the other thing I'll mention right now, because I don't know if it's in, that's a fact, Jack, is the... Eels are, or yeah, the eels in the book are not actually there. There are sharks. Little fun tidbit for you. I would recommend reading the book too. The book is fantastic. It was one of my favorite books that I read in high school. Continuing with the practicality, the sets are a sight for sore eyes. I kind of mentioned how the film had this play-like quality to it, and the sets are definitely definitely illustrate that and and create that environment. But at the same time, they still create a campy vibe to it, which isn't a bad thing because campy can. Campy, well, campy doesn't really translate over time, doesn't really translate well over time, but it, it wasn't to a large, to the large levels that cause a film such as this to be bogged down by it. It was there, but in small, minor instances that didn't affect the, how well this film is aged. The, the sunsets also, I should mention, are, are clearly fake, as I assume you all know, but it was still cool to see them. And I don't know if they use this technique, but there is a technique that I know they used in older films, such as North by Northwest, which is my favorite uh, Alfred Hitchcock film, but where they actually paint a full-on mural, sort of a full-on painting of the setting. So, for example, in North by Northwest, they painted the... They painted several scenes for that for for Mount Rushmore. They were, they were in one of the scenes. One of the settings in, is they were in Mount Rushmore, and they painted a whole backdrop with the heads of the presidents, and uh, and it looked very real in that film. But you, I mean, you of course you could tell. Obviously, you could tell. Um, no matter how good the painting is, you could still tell that they were paintings. But nonetheless, they were so good that that they just you didn't you didn't really care. Same with this film. You knew they were there, but you didn't really care because they were so beautifully painted and placed in the film. The last thing I'll mention about the practicality of it all is the filming locations, when not on a set, are beautiful. I know they filmed a lot of this stuff in England, and some of the shots they got there were truly, truly beautiful. Not to the levels of, obviously, Lawrence of Arabia or the Northmen that I mentioned, but it's still not still a, a great choice of location and and time to shoot those shots that they did. 
Moving on, we got... Actually, sorry, we're not done with practicality yet. Whoa, 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 I'm getting ahead of myself here. We also have the choreography of the sword fighting, which both the actor for Inigo Montoya and the actor for Wesley, both... That was all, that was all them. They spent several months practicing sword fighting with each other and, of course, with trained professionals. And that entire fight, which... Is that my favorite part in the film? It might be. That was all done by them, with the exception of Wesley's backflip. That was a stunt guy. Other than that, all of them off the ledge, off that kind of rock, small rock ledge. Other than that, that was all them. And again, attributes to the longevity this film has and the entertainment of it. It, it especially for cinephiles like me who are aware of that thing, it's sort of when I, when I know, especially when I know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, I shouldn't say it, it doesn't ruin my review of the film, but it does hamper, I guess, my experience of it when I know that the person that's doing all these crazy action sequences or action moments is just a stunt double. There is a whole kind of different level that comes with Tom Cruise, let's say, doing his own stunts in Mission Impossible, Jackie Chan doing his own stunts in the police story movies, and basically all of his other movies. With this film, with Carrie Elwes and Inigo Montoya's, the name of the actor for Inigo Montoya, which I'm forgetting, to see them actually and know that they're actually doing the sword fighting, which, I mean, it's actually not hard to tell, right? Because the camera, you can, you can tell it's them. Stunt doubles, they get to look close. They, they get them to look close to the actor, but they're not perfect. So in this case, it's actually pretty easy to tell that it is them. I have two more things as far as practicality is concerned. One of them is the costume design has a stereotypical elements to it, but it really isn't it really isn't the film's fault considering it is representing the era and the costumes and clothing of that era. So I, I won't I don't necessarily dock it for that, but it is something to point out. One thing that does stick out though compared to some of the other medieval films in its genre that that have that have been made prior to it and after it the colors of the costumes is, is quite interesting. There's a lot of, there's some yellows, there's some sort of maroon colors, dark purples, light blues. I, I love the contrast between the red dress of the princess and Wesley. J- just the, the decisions, the intelligent decisions that were made to, for, for the costume design, you could clearly tell were present because of that, that color matching and, that, and the mismatching eh, of those colors. And then lastly, all these things combine to make a film that is aged so well, as I have mentioned, <laughs> quite frankly, almost, almost too much. It's, it, it is not chained to the 80s. It is not chained to any really time period because of all these, all these different elements that make up the film and do a similar job to what, again, The Northman does, which is strongly establish all the foundational pieces that make an excellent film. And as I am talking throughout this, this episode, I'm kind of thinking, you know what? It, literally, the Northman is stacking up to be a more mature version of The Princess Bride. Obviously, it isn't. But now that I'm thinking about it, it definitely kind of has that vibe to it. I mean, they both take place in eras that have, that have long been gone, and one with the Viking era and the medieval era. So it kind of similar in that aspect, in that respect, it's starting to look that way. I don't know. That's just my kind of observation. Moving on, we're going to talk about 
Actually, sorry, we're still talking about mechanics. My bad. Wow, John, you're, you like to jump ahead. I, I guess I do. Apparently, I like to jump ahead. It often pokes fun at the genre, too, which cures those who constantly bring those elements up. Sort of the, there's those haters that talk about, oh my gosh, this is so stereotypical. Or something along those lines. And I hinted at talking about this earlier in the show. But it brings a newness, again, to a genre that has had many movies in it. And I love films just in general that poke fun at other films or films in their genre. Deadpool, for example, does this. Deadpool and Deadpool 2 do this in their films. And there's other films, you know, that even Ryan Reynolds is in, who's Ryan Reynolds is Deadpool in Deadpool, that poke fun at the genre that they're in. And I always love that because you don't really see them too often, but when you do, they're usually done well. I don't know if it's that it's it's just not hard. It's that it's not hard to do it. I think in this film it was hard to do it, and I'll explain why in a second. But it's just that there there's really isn't just a lot of them. It, it, and, it, and it's hard to do it with this film in particular because of the way this film's built. It isn't solely a comedic film. It still kind of has that adventure, uh, hardcore adventure element and drama element to it as I have preached throughout the episode. So to see them manage to implement that with those two genres in this film is it's it is really a masterclass, honestly. If there was a masterclass, this of combining, you know, the making fun of its own genre while still having the drama mean something and the adventure mean something and not just being a straight up parody <laughs> should deserve its own masterclass, I guess you could say. Some of the examples of the film poking fun at itself is when the person who runs the pit of despair, right, where, where Wesley gets tortured, he starts out in sort of a feminine evil voice, but then transitions into a deeper normal voice. Obviously, when you, and he kind of looks like a witch too, so when you associate witches and people that, you know, work and live in those kind of terrible conditions in the fantasy films, you always kind of think of a a sharp, evil voice, but to see his as a deep, dark, normal voice to transition into that, and of course he coughs and is like, sorry, that's, you know, that's not me, this is me, this is my actual voice, is a fun jab at the genre. The other one that I found, or I found several, but the other one I'll point out is Wesley's time with the pirates because often in fantasy stories, right, you have these pirates or these group of people that kidnap the someone, one of the main characters, and they either have to escape by, you know, fighting their, their way out of stuff or get killed, but off screen, of course, with the, with a lot of these fantasy movies. However, in this, in, in The Princess Bride, you have that poking fun moment when Wesley explains to the princess that <laughs> the Dread Pirate Roberts was actually not the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he was just covering for the Dread Pirate Roberts because the Dread Pirate Roberts retired. Should I say Dread Pirate Roberts one more time? <laughs> He retired, so he's covered. So that guy that captured Wesley is covering for him, and then the fact that not only does he not kill Wesley, or nor does Wesley have to fight to fight out of that situation, but he also offers Wesley the job and replacing him 
is very much a jab at the genre for the reasons that I mentioned just earlier in this point. And, and lastly, with this sort of making fun of the genre is the idea that the self-awareness in the film makes films like this interesting, kind of because of what I already talked about before, which is considering the fact that there's all these other movies that are in the genre, and great movies too, might I add. There's a, there's a lot of other films in the genre. You know, there's, there's a few very enjoyable and well-made Robin Hood movies. Well... I don't know. I mean, I, I think the the Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner, which I do like. I'm also a Kevin Costner fan, so take that take that with what you will. But it is still a probably not the best Robin Hood movie that I've seen. I've seen the '30s one. I think it was the '30s. I don't remember which one it is, but one of the older ones that that I also enjoy. But that one's really obviously a product of its time. Anyway, there are still a lot of great movies in the genre. But to see them again poke fun at themselves, poke fun at the genre, is just kind of raises the raises it above all those other films. I mentioned this before, but the dialogue is intelligent for a fantasy film. Not hating on other fantasy films, okay, people. I am just saying that fantasy films, especially child fantasy films for children, don't always focus on having the most intelligent dialogue. But this one does for the reasons that I've already mentioned and the quotes that I've already mentioned, you know, one of them being the prince quote from, from the prince in the film, not prince, not, prince the mu- not prince the musician, but the prince in the film. He has that one 500th anniversary quote, that sort of thing. It, again, is starting to se- help separate it from its, I guess you could say, competitors. I don't know. And just like Top Gun, which I mentioned last week on the podcast, it hits all of the moments that it needs to for a fairy tale movie or quite frankly just an adventure movie in general, right? You have the build up to a moment, you have the lull in the film, and then you have the film rising again. You have the rising action rising again to meet the climax, which in this case of course is a combination of it well, was is them obviously raiding the castle and Wesley getting the princess and Inigo finally killing the six-fingered man. And then, of course, the, the, the falling action, which doesn't, which isn't very long, right? Because they kind of ride off in the white horses and then they princess and Wesley kiss and then it's pretty much over. And, of course, you have the grandfather talking to the boy at the very end. With all that included, it's, it hits all those moments, those necessary moments. In those moments... You have some some particularly great story to, story plot points. One of them is, and this might be my I say I'm saying this one might be my favorite, but I think it is it is it is the fighting, but it's from a technical aspect, and I would say in a storytelling aspect, I would say this is my favorite, which is the churning suspense of the mysterious figure in boat, which turns out to be Wesley. It manages to put a lighter tone on a sequence that is often met with a darker tone uh, because it's just easier to do that, right? I mean, you have this boat that's ominous and in the dark that's following you and unknown to the perspective of the characters that we're with. 
Um, so, and there is still, there is still, I don't, uh, don't get me wrong. There is still, there is still a dark tone to it, but the man, but the, the, their ability to keep that kind of humor and comedy and quirkiness in that sequence, despite that is, well, first of all, congratulations writers, because or not writers, writer, William Goldman, obviously he knows the book in and out. It, it's, it, it really improves the storytelling and again separates itself from all these other all these other films the transition back to Inigo and Fezzik is a move that I always love in cinema which that transition I'm talking about the transition where Inigo is drunk and Andre the Giant's character Fezzik is kind of reviving him and bringing him back to his his senses. The that transition is where there is one particular moment that's going on in the scene, and that carries through into another scene that meets a set of characters that take over said scene. If that makes any sense, I did the best job I could there. The reason why I love that so much, not only in films and television shows, but also in books, is it is very natural, and you almost forget that it's even a transition, even though it truly is, right? Because you're handing the baton from one set of characters or one event to another, or one one event to to characters. So to see that in this film was just complete was smart on William Goldman's part, and it, it's just, it's just more entertaining, quite frankly. I've talked about comedy at points throughout this this conversation. The other thing I'll say about it is the physical comedy isn't forced and it is not overused. It's placed appropriately. The moments that I can think of off the top of my head is when Wesley is healing, right? Billy Crystal's character gives Wesley the the you know the little chocolate covered medicine sort of pill that he takes to put him from mostly dead to actually alive. And so when Wesley's head is bobbing up and down or or his his he moves his torso, moves one of his arms when they're all at the on the to, at the top of the gates of the castle and they're looking down at all the guards that are standing in front of the gate. When they're when they're on one of the they're on the highest point of the courtyard, I should say, and they're looking down at the gate with all the soldiers. That whole bit was was great physical comedy on the part of on El, on Elwes. The other moment I can think of that concerns physical comedy is the Wesley, also as Wesley, is the Wesley, Wesley and Fezzik fight. Right, they are kind of having that fun conversation about how or Fezzik's talking about how he was going to kill or should kill Wesley's car- Wesley, but he's not. And when you have Wesley strangling Fezzik and Fezzik bashing him into the back of rocks, that, that sort of moment, it's, I, I like it. It's, it the, the, the physical comedy with that scene, of course, and the one I mentioned and others, it's lightly sprinkled on there and it's not too obvious to the point where a viewer might go, Oh, okay. I see what you're doing here. It's more of a, oh, this is fitting, and matches the tone or maybe, you know, complements a different tone that's going on in in the scene. 
Finally, the last thing I will mention about the storytelling is the sportsmanship and equality are surprising even compared to its recent counterparts in the genre. And I, I mentioned this at the top too a little bit, which is you have these films that constantly get to the point whether it's fighting or for, or in situations where one has a fair advantage and the other doesn't. In pretty much every situation in this film, the good, the protagonists in the film are always treating each other with respect and let each other rest. One of the bigger examples, which I've already mentioned, is when Inigo lets Wesley rest before they, they fight each other on the top of the cliff. You, are, you really don't see that, even in films such as Peter Pan, right? Ch- ch- children's film. No, no, but again, no hate, no hate, no hate. I don't want to say it's just a children's film. I'm just pointing that out. That's a, It's a fairy tale children's film is what that project is, is going towards. But I respect those who, st- who still enjoy that film today. I, heck, I enjoy that film. I enjoy really any kind of film. Again, just finalizing my point here is I just enjoy the unusualness of it and the genuine flavor that is behind it. All right, I hate to burst y'all's bubble, but we got it. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to talk about the negatives. Now, the positive is <laughs> the positive of the negatives is there isn't a lot of them. That being said, I still have to go through them. One of the one of the things that stuck out to me is the score is weak at points, especially once it starts repeating itself. It's it's um you you notice it and it's sort of it doesn't get in the way of the film because it is a lighter score. However, it still does. If you do notice it, and especially if you're a cinephile like me, it can get in the way of, of what's going on. I kind of put it to the side, but nonetheless, it is something I should point out. And it is stereotypical when compared to its recent counterparts who have a similar score and music. <laughs> One that totally took me out of the illusion that this film was presenting is the sound effects down the hill when Wesley and the princess are rolling down it. <laughs> That's some, um, that is very much a product of its time and has not aged well. In fact, I think that's the only thing that really, that is the only thing that hasn't aged well in the film. You can definitely tell it's not them. And at times you can tell it doesn't match up with what they're, they'd actually be saying and what their mouths are actually doing at that time. All right, we are done with the negatives. See, it was quick and painless. It was just like rip, it was just like ripping off a Band-Aid. We're done. I hinted at this at the top. The one thing that I wish was in the movie that is in the book is the backstory of Inigo. Now, Inigo mentions his backstory, obviously. Like, he talks about it, but he doesn't... There isn't a, a full dedicated scene or scenes to that backstory, and I think it is absolutely fascinating. It includes his backstory. Obviously, includes his dad being a sword maker and helping his dad and growing up with his dad as a sword maker. And of course, the I mean, really, he does a nice job summarizing it in the movie. Inigo's character, Inigo, does. That being said, I would still like to see it because it isn't. It is. I want to see the fight, and I want to see. Inigo trying to defend his or trying to get revenge on his on his father in the moments and getting you know cut on in the cheeks on the cheeks. I think it's I, I kind of love those things, those origin stories. At the same time, 
I do understand why he left, why Rob Reiner and William Goldman left that out of the movie because you're trying to make it a short movie anyway. Also, it doesn't necessarily fit with everything else going on considering you got no backstories of any other characters. In the end, I understand. However, I wish we could have seen we we could have watched it or maybe they could have done they could have filmed it and put it in you know the blu-ray extras or behind the scenes extras something along those lines and another parallel with our movie last week top gun and our movie this week the princess bride is we get live action credits let's go that was uh i I was so cool i was so glad to see that of course it's been a while since i've seen this movie so i forgot that it's just as i mentioned last week it's more entertaining it'll keep the viewers in their seats longer. They won't just leave as soon as it fades to black, unless it's a Marvel movie, because you know everyone stays for the post-credit scenes. So I, I hope we 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 do get more of them. I'm not. I don't want to rehash what I talked about last week, but let's let's shoot for more of them in in films today. All right, our last segment before we end this thing is that's a fact, Jack, which you all know is my facts segment where I talk about five or six facts. I think I'm going to have seven facts. I don't know. There was a lot of great facts in this film. I talk about the facts of the, of, of the Princess Bride. So here we go with number one. When asked what his favorite thing about making this film was, Andre Rene Rousimov, I probably butchered that, replied without skipping a beat, nobody looks at me. He felt treated as an equal without people st- staring at him because of his grand size. And if you haven't got it already, that's Andre the Giant. That's his... That's his name, his actual name. Number two, during the filming of some scenes, the weather became remarkably cold for Robin Wright. Andre, Andre the Giant, helped her by placing one of his hands over her head. His hands were so large that one would entirely cover up the top top of her head, keeping her warm. That is creeping into some of my favorite movie facts behind-the-scenes movie facts of all time. I love that. Number three, when Count Rugen hits Wesley over the head, Carrie Elwes told Christopher Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Christopher Guest, that's right. Christopher Guest was the actor who played the Count. So he told Christopher Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Guest hit him hard enough to shut down production for a day while Elwes went to the hospital. Some, Some method acting, I guess, for you guys. Number four, according to author William Goldman, when he first started to get the movie made in the 1970s, a then unknown Arnold Schwarzenegger, get to the chopper, wanted to play Fezzik, and he was strongly being considered because Goldman could never get his first choice under the giant to read for the role. By the time the movie was made, about 12 years later, Schwarzenegger was such a big star they could not afford him. Andre was cast after all, and the two big men had got on to become friends. There's a couple of things I really like about this. I guess, well, primarily one, which is I'm glad it was Andre the Giant because if we got Arnold Schwarzenegger, again, nothing wrong with Arnold, our boy Arnold. He had been in so many other films around that time that it would have just felt like another Andre, or Andre, whoa, Arnold Schwarzenegger performance. So the fact that it was Andre the Giant added uniqueness to the film. 
and I think, again, helped with its longevity. I think part of the reason people come back to this film is because of the legacy of Andre the Giant. He has, of course, passed away because he, he had the, the abnormal disease that made him a large human being. All right, moving on to number five. Mandy Patkin claims, and that, Mandy Patkin, there we go. Maybe I should have read the, read, read the facts first. I'm remembering all these actors now. Mandy Patkin is Nigo Montoya, my favorite character in the film and book. Mandy Patkin claims that the only injury he sustained during the entire filming of this movie was a bruised rib due to stifling his laughter in scenes with Billy Crystal. His attempt at holding back his laughter is obvious from his facial expressions during his line, this is noble, sir. I suggest if you had the time to at least go back and watch that scene because you can tell he is having a good time and is trying not to laugh. And I think this, this again, this fact, there's so many facts here that are funny and, and just quirky and enjoyable. Th- this is one of them purely from the standpoint that he, despite all of his sword fighting and action that he did in this film, it was his laughing that got him injured. That is something you don't see every day. That's for certain. Moving on to what I believe is number six. We've gone through so many. We're starting to go through so many. Despite his almost superhuman strength, Andre the Giant's back problems at the time prevented him from actually lifting anything. Kind of ironic. Robin Wright had to be attached to wires in the scene where Buttercup jumps from the castle window into Fezzik's arms because he couldn't support her himself. It is it is kind of unfit. It is unfitting that <laughs> the one time he does this film, he can't do one of the things that he shines at. But again, it adds to the the reputation of the film, I guess you could say, and the the behind the scenes facts of the film. Lastly, this is our seventh and final fact. In order to create the greatest sword fight in modern times, that's what one of the sites that I got this fact from, which I I could agree with that. I, could, I would have to think about the sword fights that I've seen in the, the iconic sword fights in modern times, but I, I could get down I could get down with that. Anyway, back to the back to the fact. In order to create the greatest sword fight in modern times, Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patkins, trained for months with Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson, who between them had been in the Olympics, worked on Bond, James Bond movies, Lord of the Rings, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Star Wars films, and coached Errol Flynn and Burt Lancaster. Every spare moment on set was was spent, spent practicing. Eventually, when they showed Rob Reiner the sword fight for the movie, he was underwhelmed and requested that it be at least three minutes long rather than the current one minute. They added steps to the set, watched more swashbuckling movies for inspiration, re-choreographed the scene, and ended up with a three-minute and ten-second fight, which took the better part of a week to film from all angles. Again, if you don't understand the practicality of this film by now, I seriously can't help you. I just want to point that out. All right, never mind. We have an eighth. We have an eighth fact. There's one that that surprised me. I, I promise, though, this is the last fact. I promise. Then we'll close things up. Inspired by and written directly for his two daughters, writer William Goldman already had a special affection for his story, 
I hope he would. It's it's one of his books. But, I mean, I guess there are some people that, you know, don't like the stuff they've written after several years. However, it spent many years in development hell, during which it gained a reputation for being unfilmable, with at least two studio heads losing their jobs for unrelated reasons. Mere days after stating they wished to make the film, by this stage, Goldman was so disillusioned and protective of his book that he took the almost unheard of step of buying back the rights to his own story when it came available after a studio desk clearing, which is putting up every option story for sale so as, it, as, so as to start again with a clean slate. Adding on to this quote, he originally sold the script, sold the rights to the novel, or I guess the script, because he did write it, for $500,000, which today, in today's money, is, I think, $1 million, just a little over $1 million, which is, which is a lot of money. It is, it is still a lot of money, even today's standards. Anyway, that is that. Those are our facts for That's a Fact Jack segment. That is the movie Princess Bride. I hope you enjoyed my conversation, my discussion about that, as well as the movies that I've been, spoiler-free reviews of the movies that I've been watching recently. Next week, we have our first guest on. It's going to be quite special. We have Grady. He is my roommate. And he is a big Star Wars fan. I'm a big Star Wars fan, but he is the biggest Star Wars fan I think I have ever met. And I am very excited to talk about The Empire Strikes Back with him. I assume there are many Star Wars lovers out there. Not to the extent of Grady. Grady is, he's in his own kind. He's in his own breed. But, yeah, we're doing Empire, we're reviewing and discussing The Empire Strikes Back next week. I hope you're excited, as excited as I am. It is my favorite Star Wars film and one of my all-time favorite movies. I think it is a five out of five stars. I think it is a perfect movie. It's really the first movie, if not, if not the first big movie, where the villain actually wins. That's, I know that's a spoiler, but really, if you haven't seen The Empire Strikes Back by now, I, I again, just like, I, I just can't, I can't help you. Just like if you can't understand the practicality of this film after this conversation of The Princess Bride, I can't help you. All right, I have talked enough, my voice is tired, and I am going to end this thing here and now. Thank you for listening. Again, watch The Empire Strikes Back before next week so you can listen to the discussion that Grady and I have. And have a good rest of your day. Peace.